0: Hi, this is Larry Pasca, Executive Director of NCSS, the National Council for the Social Studies. This episode features an author published in an NCSS journal. Please enjoy.
1: You're listening to Visions of Education.
0: A podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, we talk about rights a lot in social studies, civil rights and even civil liberties, the rights you should have as an individual. Sure, sure. What rights should students have in school?
1: So I feel like out of everything, one of the things that that I feel strongly about is that students should be able to go to the restroom when they want, they shouldn't have to fight for their right to potty, if you will.
0: Impressive pun, Michael, I like that. I think students should be able to be in control of is going to the bathroom. When I taught seniors, there was just a check out, that way I knew where they were, but they could go to the bathroom whenever they wanted, and we just discussed it. I know in schools, they could wander off and do all kinds of stuff, but I didn't really feel like it was my job to regulate their potty breaks.
1: Right. Yeah, it always feels kind of weird.
0: What other rights do you think students would think that they should have in schools?
1: I feel like they would like the right to express their opinion.
0: Yeah, to not be silenced within the school.
1: Yeah, and I don't know if it's so much as political opinion or maybe like what they're wearing. I just think that they would like more rights. They would not like their rights there to be curbed.
0: I also think students would really want due process, and they may not use that term, But I think that they would think that if they're going to be disciplined or challenged on something, that it's only fair that they get some kind of opportunity to defend themselves or talk with other people or to hear what you know, charges are being brought against them. And now we're starting to slowly kind of just move through different Bill of Rights amendments, aren't we?
1: Oh, yeah, I guess we are.
0: But it is interesting because I know we've had this conversation before, but too often our schools don't look anything like democracies or even have democratic principles Students just seem to be kind of subjects of the, if I can use the terms, totalitarian system where everyone tells them (laughs) what to do. And that seems like if we want to prepare them for a democracy, not ideal.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I'm imagining you're leading me somewhere, correct?
0: So students have actually fought for their rights before. Um, Usually their parents got involved and they've taken these cases all the way to the Supreme Court. And I actually think that teaching about student civil liberties is a great way to introduce civil liberties in general, to teach about yeah. the Bill of Rights. And that's how I always did it. When I taught government, I would always spend the first day or two talking about different civil liberties cases, and they are super fascinating. And the one that often gets the most attention is Tinker vs. the Des Moines. Quartering clause. What were you going to say?
1: Amendment that says that you can't host soldiers in your house. You don't have to house soldiers in your house.
0: That's a big one for schools. <laughs>
1: they're, they're really focused on
0: that. So fortunately, we actually are going to invite someone in today who has talk, uh, created a good lesson about this that that was published in Social Education. And so we would like to invite into the podcast Kimberly Reed. Hello,
1: gentlemen. How are you? Hey, Kimberly. We are good. How are you? <laughs> I am
0: good. I am good. Can you tell us a little bit about your background in education and your current role?
1: Sure. First of all,
2: thank you for having me today. I've actually worked for the National Archives and Records Administration. Uh, I'm actually our public affairs coordinator. And I'm on a team of national folks across the country who focus on educational outreach and public programming. And so our audience is basically the entire United States. So we focus on working with not only the general public, but also teachers and students. And so that's kind of how I have gotten involved in topics like the one that we're going to discuss today. I've actually been with our agency for 15 years. And prior to coming to the federal government, I was actually a public library librarian. And I worked with young adults, so students, of course, who were in middle school and high school and helping them select literature and working on research topics and assignments. So that's kind of my professional background. I also have worked on a number of articles and written materials that relate to these types of topics that we're going to discuss today and and civil rights and liberties for the entire time I have been working has just been a hot topic. And I think even today it continues to be such. It's it's great because you're constantly working with students Uh, More often students, but
3: sometimes educators who just don't always have, you know, they don't don't necessarily have the knowledge or the
2: background about certain things. And so it's great to be able to use the materials that we have in our holdings to really drive home some of those examples of what's happened in American history.
1: Speaking of documents, do you have like a, a favorite document that you found
2: I have many favorites over the years. That's <laughs> a challenge when you work for an agency like mine. You know, we have billions of records. And for many years, the Tinker case was one of my favorites because there's several documents in it that are exhibitions that were presented as part of the argument in the case. But I also am a huge fan of National Park Service records, which are just a whole different type of material and people sometimes forget that we have those in our holdings. So for me, it, it, it changes. <laughs> I might find something next week that becomes my new favorite.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. We're going to talk about that case a little bit more in a second, but I actually have a question for you. Since you work so much with documents and work on the research process, what advice do you have on that end for educators? Because I know as an educator, often we ask students to do research but too often, I don't think it's, we give them enough guidance on where to go and how to find credible quality resources. I think that is the biggest challenge, especially in today's world. I've had the opportunity, or I should say maybe the privilege, to watch this evolve over
2: the past 20, 25 years since I was a student. And the biggest challenge we have today is sometimes students don't know what a primary source is. So they use a lot of secondary sources, or they just, Google it, which I always caution people, you can start with that, but then you need to dig deeper and make sure that that information is coming from a credible source, a journal or a book article or a newspaper or an original court case or or whatever that might be. And that takes time. I think most often for students, they don't build in enough time to do their research. And for educators, I know they don't have the time (laughs) Uh, and and that makes it really hard. So one of the things I always advise is if you're using online sources, keep a, an eye on where the page is hosted. Is it from a university, from a library, from an archives? Then you know that the information is coming from a credible source as opposed to a .com site, or of course that's a, usually a commercial entity of some sort. So some of us just having some basic research understanding. And today's students, didn't have the opportunity to see that evolve. So sometimes they kind of go off on a different path and then they have to backtrack to, to where they need to be sometimes in their research and that can present challenges. The other thing is if, if a student is doing research and they have the time and they've built in that in a timeline into their research process, which they should, I always encourage people to look at oral histories or try to do oral history interviews if it's appropriate to a topic. And that's another aspect that helps people. I, I've, I've watched those students track down well-known individuals and ask them if they can do phone interviews with them. And it's, it really opens their eyes into understanding a, a topic or a, a research aspect. And I think that's,
3: that's also useful.
0: That's very cool, and I appreciate the advice. Just getting across that the Google algorithm is, <laughs> is not the ideal search engine for finding quality sources is, is the first challenge, right?
2: It really is. And I think students get frustrated by that. They didn't grow up in an age where you went to the library, perhaps, and you actually had to pull an encyclopedia if you were in uh, elementary school or you had to go to the reference materials section and, and find the credible source of whatever your question or or topic was and we've we've made it very easy today to find information but with that comes challenges as well.
0: Yeah I had I just taught a class in May where the students had a little bit of a research project and they were finding documents and quotes to create little document-based questions on different topics and one was on teaching culture and how culture affects schools and one of the students came up with a counter argument and it was a little fishy to me and so I asked him to look at the source and it was a white supremacist website that he was oh. using and, oh, no. and I'd heard that oh. happen to other people but you know it pop- probably popped up pretty quick in his Google algorithm and so it's just a reminder to be careful where your sources come from.
2: Yes. And today's students—that's what they know because they're in one-to-one school environments, and you know they've grown up with that technology. Whereas those of us who are a little bit more seasoned, uh, to remember the days for you—you wrote your notes on an index card from the library, perhaps. So you know things—things things have changed.
0: Michael, we've been called many things, but seasoned is a new one, <laughs> and it's—it's it's actually pretty accurate. <laughs> I prefer that. <laughs> so, Kimberly, yeah. the, one of the reasons we're having you on today is because you published an excellent article titled, Upholding Student Rights in the 20th Century, an Examination of Tinker v. Des Moines Independent Community School District in Social Education in the March-April issue. So, first, congratulations on your publication.
2: Oh, thank you very much. <laughs>
0: So, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you wrote about and how teachers can use it?
2: Yes. So, this is from a court case, and we have this case in the holdings of the National Archives. It It was originally filed at the U.S. District Court level, and it is the story of the Tinker family, essentially, specifically John and Mary Tinker and their friends, who wanted to peacefully protest the U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War. And by doing so, they wanted to wear armbands to school. And this is in the late 1960s, at a time when, of course, America was very divided for our presence in Southeast Asia. And their administrators at the school district school board level said that's not appropriate, and any student who's wearing an armband would be asked to remove one, and if they refuse, they will be suspended and until they can return to school without wearing it. And so, of course, the students immediately recognized that this was a potential or a violation of their First Amendment rights as part of freedom of speech, and the timing on all this is very interesting because they did this right around the holiday break. And so that kind of plays into
3: some of the timeline here. It was, it was done at the end of, of December. And so the school district put out a policy saying that they would not, that they would enforce their suspension uh, policy, that sort of thing. The students,
2: of course, arrived at school wearing their armbands, etc., etc., and faced a suspension along with all of their friends. I do want to point out that the Tinker family a couple of things about this family they are interesting. Um, they were a very well-respected family in Des Moines. Their father was a, I believe, Methodist minister, and the Tinker uh, children are still alive today, and Mary Beth Tinker actually lectures on this case pretty frequently, and I've had the privilege of getting to hear her talk about it. She, she tells the story, obviously, a lot better than I will, because <laughs> so she lived it, but it's, it's a great to the story and it's, it's awesome to hear her talk about it. They got help from the ACLU and took their, their complaint to district court. And of course there is a district court in Des Moines, Iowa, which is how we wound up eventually with the case. This case works its way through the court system and becomes what we refer to as a precedent case because it winds up at the Supreme Court level a few years later. And that's, I think, what makes it so unique and so unusual um, in terms of how these students fought for their their rights, essentially. I mean, that's what they were doing here. And so the Supreme Court did issue an opinion on it. Ironically, I I believe by the time the, the Supreme Court published the opinion. John Baker, I know, was in college, and I think Mary Beth had already graduated high school, too, so it, it took a few years, which it usually does, to work its way through the appeals process here. But the you know, the court had pointed out that the school had allowed other political symbols, such as campaign buttons and other items, to be worn by students. And so one of the Supreme
3: Court justices said a wearing of armbands was entirely divorced from
2: actually or potentially disrupting conduct by those participating in it. And so he also went on to say, hardly be argued that either students or teachers shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. In other words, you may be a student, and yes, the First Amendment still does apply to you and the rights and protections that come with it. And I think that's what's really important in this case and getting students to understand what that means, especially in today's world. One of the things I think that would be very interesting is for students to launch what I would call a 21st century campaign. In today's world, you know, we we have social media, we have cell phones, you can text your friends. None of that existed in the late 1960s. So these kids were coordinating this activity with phone calls to each other's houses and and that sort of thing. It was obviously a different world in terms of, of technology access then. And I think in today's world, that's one of the things that's most interesting. And we see lots of protests right now happening across the country. And I have watch the you know, students text each other. I have a 15-year-old son who uses Snapchat to communicate all the time and uses it to set up those conversations of, hey, we're going to be here, and are you joining us, and that sort of thing. So it, things have changed in terms of how this approach might be done today,
3: but the underlying argument that students still have the same rights
2: and freedoms of any other American citizen is
0: just as important, I think. I loved teaching about this, as I mentioned earlier. And the way I always introduced it is that, you know, students in schools are kind of like mini citizens. They have most of the rights and they're just all reduced a little bit within school environments. But the tests give us really clear uh, tests to understand, right? So in this case, the Tinker case, it gave us the disruption test, correct? Which is is going to... Say that, you know, if as long as you're not disrupting, you have a right to speech. But if it's disruptive to school, and then there's been numerous follow up cases that have investigated different situations, which whether they were disruptive. And there's some really interesting ones and some, some ones that students would, would probably really like getting into. Kimberly, can you tell us a little bit about the documents that you chose for this and how teachers and students could use them? Sure. So, the length of the district court case is not terribly long. It's, um, it's eh, maybe actually a couple hundred pages. Court cases in general can be very lengthy, which from a research standpoint, I am
2: used to having worked with a lot of court records over the years, but sometimes students and educators, but students in particular can get a little frustrated because they can't always find, you know, what they're looking for or they, they're don't want to read through page after page of court complaint documents and that sort of thing. What I told that I thought would be most useful with this article are a couple of things. One is uh, a document that's titled at the top, Lee Born, and it's actually available also on our, our website. And because we've scanned this entire case to the National Archives catalog so folks can can pull it at their leisure for research needs. But this is one that the students had put together, and it, it kind of outlines why they're expressing their grief over deaths of soldiers and civilians in Vietnam, and what they intend to do about it, and, and how they intend to express that grief. And so that's where they talk about they're going to wear their black armbands uh, on December 16th, that sort of thing. So, of course, it was admitted as, as an exhibit as part of the case, and then... The follow-up to that, that kind of goes with it, is the proposed policy for secondary principles regarding student conduct. And that's also an exhibit here in the case that talks about the school district's approach to state statute regarding dress code and student conduct, and so why they're defending their their policy of why students should not wear the armbands and that sort of thing, and how the students would be suspended from school, et cetera, et cetera, if if that's there. This type of policy I do want to mention is very typical of school districts across the country. I actually happen to sit on a Board of Education for a public school district here in Missouri. I'm very familiar with looking at something like this. So it's, it's for the time, it was pretty standard, and not, not a lot of those have changed over the years by any means. And so I think one of the neat things about this is you can look at this policy that the Board of Ed for Des Moines put out and compare it. To what a student might see from their own board of education in their own school district today, and that there's an opportunity there for some compare and contrast uh, research and uh, writing and, and being able to discuss those types of documents. And then the third thing that I thought was really interesting, in this case that was submitted as well as one of the exhibits, is a newspaper article, and this is from. The, written by the reporter at the Des Moines Register that talks about the school district banning wearing of the Viet arm armbands, And that's what the, the headline says here of this newspaper piece. And so a colleague had asked me about, you know, getting clarification on the date that article ran, and she and I had both briefly forgotten that this was at a time in America where newspapers were printed twice a day. And so what ran in the morning paper could easily be different than what ran in the evening newspaper. And so that's one of the things that makes it interesting when someone delves into this type of research, because when we start looking at the dates of, when did the policy come out? When did the article run? Well, how come they're, you know, like the same day? Well, because the newspaper ran the story that night so that it would
3: have hit people's homes when the six o'clock paper was delivered. And so that's, crazy. that's, well, but that was the world we lived in.
2: And I do recall as a child uh, in our house, we had the morning paper and we had the evening paper. And the evening paper was always a little bit thinner, but it was a recap of what had happened across the city that day. And that's that's what we have also here in this case, which is, is something that students today would not know. <laughs> they
0: wouldn't recognize that. they. they forget that we had that service as, as part of journalism then. I remember that, and it's mainly because I'm seasoned. <laughs>
2: <laughs> me too.
0: <laughs> they quit, the the Tulsa Tribune quit their, like, afternoon paper when I was in second or third grade, but I remember it.
2: That's, that's about when it happened for me here in Kansas City. I think it was about sixth or seventh grade, but yeah, I remember. They held on for a while, so... <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, it's really fascinating and of course using documents and using, you know, artifacts like this are an important part of social studies work. And again, I think this can generate a lot of really important conversations about what should their rights be in school. And I think teachers should really encourage students to take this up and not not be worried by it. And of course, then that opens the conversation to different issues like privacy rights at school. And you can the privacy rights cases have been very fascinating, from New Jersey to TLO to the more recent uh, I think the Stafford case, right? Is it was it Stafford or Stafford? Do you know that one? I'm not familiar with that one. It's called the the Safford versus Redding case, which happened uh, probably about 10 years ago um, about whether they can strip search a student based on an accusation.
2: Yeah, now it's, now it's coming back. Yeah, to and so
0: these cases really bring up a lot of about what democracy is about and because it helps students see like a point for the Bill of Rights. Like That's why people wanted it because they didn't want all their rights to be taken away at any time without any you know due process
2: you're spot on. And one of the other interesting things is while students may use this case today for research and projects or whatever they're studying, the flip side of that is some of school board associations across the country use this case as well in their training of school boards. And I know that for a fact because I've had to sit through that training uh, because in the state of Missouri, school board members are legally required To have so many hours of continuing
3: education and training. And they use this case as
2: as one of the examples when they talk about board of education and setting their policy and that sort of thing. So there's a, it's interesting. It's used in the classroom as we would expect, but it's also used as training on the other side.
0: Absolutely. And I think one thing I always tell students is they should not make the assumption that their schools and principals are always abiding by the laws. I've seen numerous cases of administrators and teachers and others violate constitutional rights of students, whether it's requiring them to stand up and say the pledge, which was decided in a Supreme Court case that you cannot legally do that, uh, to a variety it's of like other the issues. 30s, right? Yeah, that one was yes, in the 1940s, yes. and the, that's another his, interesting historical case, because the law at that time in West Virginia was to do the strong arm <laughs> salute with the palm actually up in the air. But it looks very much in pictures like the Nazi salute, and so when people mm-hmm. look at those old pictures, they there was debate about that even starting to emerge at the time. But that actually wasn't the issue; it was
1: that was religious liberty, right? Yeah,
0: beca- it became a religious liberty case. I think it actually started as a free speech case, and the judge actually said, "No, this is a religious liberty case." Really, right? Um, so
2: I think that's West Virginia versus Barnett,
0: yes. if I remember correctly. Yes, that's yeah. it. So, so oh, we could get into so many of these. <laughs> Um, unfortunately, for time, we we cannot get into
1: all of them. So, what uh, tips do you have for teachers using this lesson or, or ones like it in the classroom? I think
2: a, a couple things. One, I would really suggest that they encourage their students to spend time on. We have a website called Docs Teach that the National Archives hosts, and the materials that I've noted for this case are on there, and I would really encourage them to use that tool with their students or have their students use the tool to kind of build out some of their review and examination of the case and then launch into
3: whatever projects or assignments or teaching activities they might want to pursue with it. And then two, I think it's important to put it into context
2: that they uh, can relate to. So I go back to saying, look at your own community policies. Look at your own board of ed or your own school district's policy today. And could the same thing happen in your community? You know, is this something that we could easily see again over and over? I suspect that we will over time. But I think it will take a different form because of the role in which social media and our phones and other technology plays today. So I think those are kind of my two key things for teachers. I think this is one of those cases where you really have to use critical thinking and analysis to really look at this case. You know, the other thing is because Mary Beth Tinker lectures on this quite a bit, she is available and does do a lot of school visits. And so I always say, hey, if you could bring in someone who experienced this firsthand and was, you know, the plaintiff in the case, try to engage with them so that you really get that first-person account and understand what that experience was like for those, those people.
0: Yeah, I know she's, she's uh, spoke at NCSS in recent years.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She was there, I think it was uh, 2016. So, I mean, there's there's multiple ways, I think, for educators to look at those. And you know, they can choose how they want to use it and pursue it in their own classrooms.
0: Well, fantastic. Thank you so much, Kimberly, for joining us today. We just really appreciated talking with you.
1: Thank you. Now, where can our listeners find you or your work online? So the case is available on in a couple
2: places in our catalog online, as well as on DocsTeach. And then I can actually be found through our National Archives at Kansas City contact information page and then also through LinkedIn. And I will send you those links so that if people have questions, they can reach out to me and I'd be happy to help answer direct accordingly.
0: We will put links to get to those places and then also links to the articles and other resources that you will share with us and that we've discussed during the podcast, all in our show notes. And so make sure if you're listening to the episode, you check out the wealth of resources there.
2: Yes. And I will caution, there's quite a bit out there on this topic. I think oftentimes what an educator might discover is it becomes really hard to narrow down which aspects of civil rights or civil liberties they might want to
3: look at. So we've mentioned several court cases, and a lot of those we obviously have available. So it, it, it might be a little overwhelming for some folks, So That may be the
2: hardest part here with this topic.
0: Well, Michael's taught world history before, right? There's I a ne- lot. I never even understand how that's, <laughs> how that's a course. It seems ridiculous. Yeah, it's a lot. Thank you again so much. We definitely will be wary on those sites and choose wisely, and we will look to continue the discussion
1: online and in other spaces.
2: Yes. It's wonderful. Thank you.
1: Thank you. At the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun, creative in education, or you just want to chat, hit us up at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook and possibly one other place. And if you haven't already, which really, why haven't you? Subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and anywhere you want us to be.
0: I'm definitely looking forward to getting messages on our mystery social media account. (laughs) (laughs) If you write us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, we will read it on the air. Find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka.
1: And I'm at 42ThinkDeep.
0: Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off.